After reciting the Tashahud, Ta'awuz and Surah Al-Fatiha, Hazrat Khalifatul Masih V, Ayyadahullah Ta'ala bin Asrahi Al-Aziz stated, that in the previous sermon I was relating the accounts from the life of Hazrat Abu Ubaidah radiallahu ta'ala anhu and today I shall present the remaining accounts from his life. There was a battle that took place which is known as the Battle of Yarmouk and the reason why it was called Yarmouk is because Yarmouk is the name of a valley that lies in the outskirts of Syria and one of the most major battles in Syria was fought in 15 Hijri on the plains of Yarmouk at the banks of the river Yarmouk. The Roman army, led by Vahan, brought close to 250,000 soldiers onto the battlefield, while the Muslims numbered around 30,000, which also included 1,000 companions of the Holy Prophet, peace be upon him, and a hundred of whom had participated in the Battle of Badr. Upon mutual consultation, the Muslims temporarily withdrew their forces from the city of Homs. They said to the Christians of Homs that as we are temporarily withdrawing our protection from you, therefore your jizya, i.e. the taxes collected from you, is being returned to you as we are unable to fulfill the obligations for which the jizya was levied. Hence, the jizya was returned to the people of Homs, which amounted to several hundreds of thousands. And when this money was being returned, the Christians would cry on account of the honesty and justice of the Muslims. And they would pray from the rooftops of their houses that, O merciful Muslim rulers, may God bring you back again. When the Muslims withdrew from the city of Homs, the Romans were further encouraged and they arrived at Yarmouk with a large army and camped there to fight the Muslims. However, in their hearts they were afraid of the strength the Muslims drew from their faith. And so they also wished for some diplomatic resolution and tried to form a treaty. And so the Roman commander Vahan sent a Roman emissary named George to the Muslim army. 
When he reached the Muslim army, they were offering the Maghrib prayer at the time. And upon seeing the Muslims prostrating before Allah the Almighty with great humility, it left a deep impression upon him. Upon this, he asked some questions to Hazrat Abu Ubaidah anhu, one of which was, that what is your view of Jesus? In reply to his question, Hazrat Abu Ubaidah anhu recited the following verse of the Holy Qur'an. Ya ahlal kitabi la taghlu fi dinikum wa la taqulu ala Allahi illa al-haq. Innamal masihu Isa ibn Maryama Rasulullah wa kalimatuhu alqaha ila Maryam wa ruhun minhu fa'aminu billahi wa rusuli wa la taqulu thalatha intahu khayran lakum innamallahu ilahum wahid subhanahu an yakuna lahu walad lahu ma fis samawati wa ma fil ard wa kafa billahi wakila That is, O people of the book, exceed not the limits in your religion and say not of Allah anything but the truth. Verily, the Messiah, Jesus, son of Mary, was only a messenger of Allah and a fulfillment of his word which he sent down to Mary, and a mercy from him. So believe in Allah and his messengers, and say not that they are three. Desist, it will be better for you. Verily, Allah is the only one God. Far is it from his holiness that he should have a son. To him belongs whatever is in the heavens and whatever is in the earth. And sufficient is Allah as a guardian. Thereafter, Hazrat Abu Ubaidah anhu recited the following verse. That is, surely the Messiah will never disdain to be a servant of Allah, nor will the angels near unto God. When George, who had come as a representative of the opposing army, heard these teachings of the Holy Qur'an, he stated that indeed these were the qualities of the Messiah. He also stated that their messenger, i.e. the Holy Prophet, peace and blessings of Allah be upon him, was true and thus accepted Islam. And so he did not wish to return to his army. However, Hazrat Abu Ubaidah stated that the Romans will think that the Muslims have broken their pact, therefore he should return. Hazrat Abu Ubaidah advised that he could return the following day with the emissary that was to be sent from the Muslim army to them. Hazrat Abu Ubaidah called the Christian army towards Islam 
and presented to them the Islamic teachings of equality, brotherhood and its morals. The following day, Hazrat Khalid went to them. However, his visit was not fruitful and so preparations for a battle commenced. The Muslim women were at the rear of the army who gave water to the soldiers, tended to the wounded and encouraged the soldiers during the battle. Hazrat Asma bint Abi Bakr, Hazrat Hind bint Utba, who accepted Islam on the occasion of the conquest of Makkah and was the wife of Hazrat Abu Sufyan and also Hazrat Umm Aban, etc., were among these women. Addressing the Muslim women prior to the battle, Hazrat Abu Ubaidah stated that, O Mujahidat, pull out the pegs from the tents and take them into your hands and fill your cloaks with rocks and stones and give encouragement to the Muslims to fight. Tell them that today is the day of combat and they are not to turn their backs. And if you see the Muslims gaining victory, then remain seated in your places. And if you see the Muslims retreating, then strike their faces with these pegs and pelt them with stones and send them back into the battlefield. And lift your children up and tell them to go and sacrifice their lives for their families and for the sake of Islam. Following this, Hazrat Abu Ubaidah then addressed the men in the following manner, O servants of Allah, come forward in support of God as He will help you in return and grant you steadfastness. O servants of Allah, be patient, as this is the very means of becoming pure from any form of disbelief and it's the means of pleasing God and washing away one stain of humiliation. Do not break your ranks, do not be the ones who instigate the battle and raise your spears and secure your God and remain engaged in the remembrance of Allah the Almighty so that He may fulfill His will. Thus, they were instructed that they must not be the ones who initiate the fighting but once the battle had commenced then they should not turn their backs from it. It is said that the opposing army placed a golden cross at the front of its army and their glistening armour was reflecting into the eyes of the Muslim army. Moreover, they were covered in iron from head to toe, that is, they were fully clad in armour. On that day, they also wore chains around their ankles so that they could not retreat from the battlefield. Thus, they would either kill or be killed. And their priests were reading extracts from the Gospel to rouse their emotions. And the army of the disbelievers advanced like waves of the ocean. Theirs was an army of around 200 to 250,000 soldiers, whereas the Muslims were only 30,000. But in any case, the battle commenced. At first, the Romans had the upper hand and started to push the Muslims back. The Christians had secretly received information as to who among the Muslim army were the companions of the Holy Prophet, peace be upon him. And so they positioned some of their skilled archers on a hill and instructed them to specifically target the companions with their arrows. They knew that once the prominent men were killed, the remaining army will subsequently become disheartened and they would flee from the battlefield. As a result of this, several companions were killed and some lost their eyes. Upon witnessing these scenes, Ikrimah the son of Abu Jahl, who had accepted Islam at the time of the conquest of Makkah and who had said to the Holy Prophet, peace be upon him on that occasion, that pray that Allah enables me to atone for my previous sins. In other words, may Allah the Almighty enable him to atone for his past deeds.
कई की आंखें भी जाया हो ये हालत देखी तो इक्रमा अबू जहल के बेटे जो फतेह मक्का के वक्त मुसलमान हो गए थे he then went with some of his companions to Hazrat Abu Ubaidah and stated, The companions of the Holy Prophet, peace and blessings of Allah be upon him, have offered great sacrifices. Allow us who joined the fold of Islam later to also partake in the blessings. We will attack the core of the army and kill the Christian generals. Hazrat Abu Ubaidah replied, that this is a very dangerous assignment and whichever young fighter goes to attempt this will be killed. Ikrma replied that this is true. However, what other choice do we have? Would you like for us youths to stay safe and for the companions to be killed? Since he had accepted Islam, he was instilled with the passion and yearning to sacrifice his life for the sake of Allah the Almighty. And so Ikrma repeatedly asked for permission for him and 400 other fighters to attack the core of the enemy army. Eventually, Hazrat Abu Ubaidah granted permission upon the insistence of Ikrma, and thus they attacked the core of the army and were successful. However, the majority of the youths were martyred in this attack. The Muslims managed to push the Byzantine forces back towards the trenches they had dug, and since they had shackled themselves together lest anyone runs away, the soldiers fell in the trenches in large numbers. If one would fall, they would take 10 others with them. And whilst retreating, 80,000 soldiers from among the disbelievers drowned in the Yarmouk River and 100,000 Byzantine soldiers were killed in the battlefield and 3,000 Muslims were martyred. This was the Battle of Yarmouk. With regards to the Battle of Yarmouk, in particular the conclusion of it, Hazrat Muslim anhu writes, When the battle finished, the Muslims went in search of Ikrma and those with him, i.e. those who launched the attack, and they discovered that 12 of them were severely injured, including Ikrma. Upon seeing the grave condition of Ikrma, one Muslim soldier said to him, that, O Ikrma, I have a water bag with me, drink some water from it. Ikrma turned his head and saw that Hazrat Fazl, the son of Hazrat Abbas was lying injured near to him. Ikrma said to the Muslim soldier that my honour would not permit me to quench my thirst and live whilst those people and their progeny who assisted the Holy Prophet peace be upon him at a time when I was his staunch enemy to die of thirst. He was invigorated with a new passion to sacrifice for others. Therefore he said that first give the water to him i.e. Hazrat Fazl bin Abbas. And if there is any left, then bring it for me. The Muslim soldier then went to Hazrat Fazl radiallahu ta'ala anhu, but he indicated that another injured Muslim ought to be given water first, as he was more in need than he was. The Muslim soldier then went to him, but he also stated that another injured Muslim was more in need of water, therefore he ought to go to him first. Accordingly, whichever injured soldier he would go to, they would send him to the next person, and none would drink the water. When the Muslim soldier went to the last injured soldier, he had already passed away. He then went to the next injured soldier and eventually returned back to Ikrma, yet they all had passed away. The people of Syria belonged to different religions, spoke different languages and were of various ethnicities. 
Hazrat Abu Ubaidah bin Jarrah radiyallahu ta'ala anhu upheld justice and established equality between them. Peace and order was restored and each citizen was granted religious freedom. Hazrat Abu Ubaidah radiyallahu ta'ala anhu established the essence of the Islamic teaching by telling them that you are all the children of Adam and are brothers to one another. Therefore, as humans, everybody is equal. A common allegation that is raised is that people were compelled to accept Islam. However, this is completely incorrect. Hazrat Abu Ubaidah granted religious freedom to the Romans. He ensured each tribe was given their due rights and established law and order. And owing to the conduct of Hazrat Abu Ubaidah, the Arabs of Syria who were Christians accepted Islam. As mentioned earlier, they accepted Islam due to the preaching or upon seeing the good conduct of the Muslims and not through compulsion. Aside from this, the Romans and the Christians also accepted Islam owing to his high morals. A few days prior to the victory at Yarmouk, Hazrat Abu Bakr passed away and Hazrat Umar was elected as the Khalifa. Hazrat Umar appointed Hazrat Abu Ubaidah as the governor of Syria and as the commander of the army. When Hazrat Abu Ubaidah received these instructions from Hazrat Umar, the battle was at its peak intensity and owing to this, Hazrat Abu Ubaidah did not mention the letter. When Hazrat Khalid bin Walid came to know of it, as Hazrat Khalid was the commander up until then, he asked Hazrat Abu Ubaidah why he did not disclose the instructions of Hazrat Umar. Hazrat Abu Ubaidah replied, that we were confronting the enemy and I did not wish to cause you any distress. When the Muslims gained victory at Yarmouk and Hazrat Khalid's army was preparing to depart for Iraq, Hazrat Abu Ubaidah kept Hazrat Khalid with him for a while. And when Hazrat Khalid was about to depart, he said to the people that they should rejoice that an Amin, i.e. the custodian of this Ummah, had been placed as a governor over them, i.e. referring to Hazrat Abu Ubaidah. Hazrat Abu Ubaidah responded, I have heard the Holy Prophet, peace and blessings of Allah be upon him, say that Khalid is a sword from among the swords of God. And thus, both commanders departed on a note of mutual love and respect. This is the level of righteousness of a true believer, in that they never had any desire for fame or glory, and nor did they wish for any position or office. They only wished to attain the pleasure of Allah the Almighty, and to establish Allah the Almighty's sovereignty on the earth. Therefore, these people are excellent models for us, and every office bearer, in fact every Ahmadi, ought to bear their examples in mind. The conquest of Jerusalem is also linked to Hazrat Abu Ubaidah It is stated that the Muslim army advanced towards Palestine under the command of Hazrat Amr bin As When he conquered the cities of Palestine, he reached Jerusalem and besieged it. Hazrat Abu Ubaidah also joined him with his contingent. The Christians had retreated into their forts. But becoming frustrated by this, they wished to settle into a treaty on the condition that Hazrat Umar would come himself for this treaty. Hazrat Abu Ubaidah informed Hazrat Umar about the demands of the Christians. And thus, in Rabi al-Awwal of 16 Hijri, Hazrat Umar left Medina 
and appointed Hazrat Ali radiallahu ta'ala anhu as the Amir in his absence. Hazrat Umar radiallahu ta'ala anhu reached Jabiyah, which was a settlement in the peripheries of Damascus. And upon his arrival, he was greeted by the commanders of the various contingents of the Muslim army. Hazrat Umar radiallahu ta'ala anhu asked that, Where is my brother? The people inquired, O leader of the faithful, who are you referring to? He replied, Abu Ubaidah. He was informed that he was on his way. Hazrat Abu Ubaidah radiallahu ta'ala anhu arrived on his camel. He offered the greetings of peace and inquired about Hazrat Umar radiallahu ta'ala anhu's well-being. Hazrat Umar then requested everyone else to leave and he set off with Hazrat Abu Ubaidah to his residence. When he reached his home, he saw that apart from one sword, a shield, a mat and a bowl, the house was empty. Hazrat Umar radiallahu ta'ala anhu said that, O Abu Ubaidah, you could have acquired some amenities, i.e. that he ought to have some things at home. Hazrat Abu Ubaidah replied that, O leader of the faithful, then one could be inclined towards comforts, meaning that he could have acquired some commodities but then one would be inclined towards comforts and luxuries. That is why he don't wish to acquire any. On this occasion, an extraordinary incident also took place, which was regarding the azan, i.e. the call of prayer of Hazrat Bilal radiallahu ta'ala anhu, and has been narrated before as well. It is said that after the demise of the Holy Prophet, peace be upon him, Hazrat Bilal radiallahu ta'ala anhu stopped calling the azan. During one occasion, when the time for prayer approached, the people urged Hazrat Umar anhu to instruct Hazrat Bilal to call the azan. And so, upon the instructions of Hazrat Umar anhu, Hazrat Bilal called the azan, and everyone was overcome with emotion. The people began to weep, and from among them Hazrat Umar anhu wept the most, because the azan reminded him of the Holy Prophet, peace be upon him's time. With regards to the Byzantine attempt to recapture Syria, it is written that in 17 Hijri, the Byzantine forces launched a last attempt to recapture Syria. The Christians, Iranians, Bedouins and Kurds residing in the areas of northern Syria, Al Jazeera, northern Iraq and Armenia went to the Heraclius, a Byzantine emperor, and appealed to him for help against the Muslims. He sent an army of 30,000 soldiers for this task. And even though Hazrat Saad bin Abi Waqas had conquered most of Al Jazeera region, however, up until then, he did not have rule over the Bedouins. Furthermore, the Byzantine Emperor still had a strong naval presence. And so, seizing the opportunity, he sent a large naval fleet to attack whilst the Bedouins raised a large army and besieged Homs. Some cities in northern Syria also rebelled. Hazrat Abu Ubaidah radiallahu ta'ala anhu sent a letter to Hazrat Umar radiallahu ta'ala anhu asking for reinforcements. And so Hazrat Umar radiallahu ta'ala anhu immediately ordered Hazrat Saad bin Abi Waqas to send reinforcements from Kufa. Hazrat Saad bin Abi Waqas sent an army from Kufa under the command of Kaka bin Amr. However, despite all this, the Muslim army was heavily outnumbered as compared to the Byzantine forces. Hazrat Abu Ubaidah delivered a passionate address before the soldiers of the army, saying, O Muslims, whoever remains steadfast today and lives to see the light of day will be granted victory and wealth. But whosoever is killed will be granted the fortune that is martyrdom. And I bear witness that I heard the Holy Prophet, peace and blessings of Allah be upon him, say that whoever dies in a state whereby he is not an idolater, he will certainly enter paradise. 
A battle ensued between the two sides and after a short while the Byzantine army suffered losses and retreated to Marjul Dibaj, which is the name of a mountainous area in the frontier area of Syria, situated approximately 10 miles from the town of Masisa. Following this, the Byzantine emperor never managed to launch another attack to capture Syria. Taun Amvas is a name of a valley which is six miles from Ramla in the direction of Battle Maqdas. According to the books of history, it was named Taun Amvas because the outbreak of the plague started from here. And countless deaths occurred in Syria as a result of this plague. And according to some, there were around 25,000 deaths. The details of this incident are found in a narration of Bukhari. Hazrat Abdullah bin Abbas relates that when Hazrat Umar reached Sarag, Sarag is the name of a village near the valley of Tabuk, which is situated near the borders of Syria and Hijaz, and was at a distance of approximately 13 days of travel from Medina. In the old historical sources, the distances were given like this, however it equates to approximately a thousand miles. In any case, when Hazrat Umar anhu reached there, he met the commander of the armies, Hazrat Abu Ubaidah and his fellow companions. They informed Hazrat Umar that there was an outbreak of a plague in Syria. And in order to seek counsel on the matter, Hazrat Umar anhu invited the early Muhajireen to present their suggestions. However, there was a difference of opinion amongst the Muhajireen. Some of them were of the opinion that they should continue on with their journey and not turn back whilst the others suggested that the noble companions of the Holy Prophet, peace be upon him, were present in the army, and therefore it was not appropriate for them to be taken into an area where there was a plague, and it was better to return. Hazrat Umar anhu then told the Muhajireen to leave and invited the Ansar to present their suggestions. And just like the Muhajireen, the Ansar also had a difference of opinions. Hazrat Umar anhu then invited the elders of the Quraysh, who had accepted Islam at the occasion of the conquest of Makkah, and then came and settled in Medina. All of them unanimously expressed their opinion of taking everyone back and that there was no need to enter an area where there was an outbreak of the plague. Accepting their suggestion, Hazrat Umar announced to return. Hazrat Abu Ubaidah then asked, was it possible for one to escape from what God had decreed? Replying to Hazrat Abu Ubaidah, Hazrat Umar stated that, O Abu Ubaidah, I wish it was someone else who had uttered what you have said. Indeed, we are moving away from one decree of God to another. They were moving away from one decree, but towards another decree of God. Hazrat Umar then further stated, that say you have some camels and you reach a valley which has two sides. One is a lush green area full of vegetation, while the other is a dry and barren land. Now would it not be in accordance to the decree of God if you were to take your camels to graze in the area with lots of vegetation? And on the other hand, it will also be according to the decree of God if you decided to take them to the dry and barren land. The narrator of the tradition states that in the meanwhile, Hazrat Abdul Rahman bin Awf came, who was not present earlier owing to some work he was engaged in. Hazrat Abdul Rahman bin Awf submitted, I have the answer to this issue. I once heard the Holy Prophet, peace be upon him, say that if one learns about the outbreak of a disease in a certain area, they should not travel there. And if the disease has emerged in an area where one resides in, then they shouldn't leave the area in order to escape from it. Upon hearing this, Hazrat Umar expressed his gratitude to Allah the Almighty and returned from there. 
in regards to Ta'awun Amwas, Hazrat Muslim Aud radiyallahu ta'ala anhu states that when Hazrat Umar radiyallahu ta'ala anhu travelled to Syria, he was welcomed by Hazrat Abu Ubaidah and the Muslim army. At the time, the plague there, which is known as Ta'awun Amwas, became widespread and the companions suggested that since there was an outbreak of the plague, therefore he should return. Accepting their suggestion, Hazrat Umar radiyallahu ta'ala anhu made the decision to return. And when Hazrat Abu Ubaidah radiyallahu ta'ala anhu, who would tend to accept things as they were, came to learn of this decision, he stated that, Are you running away from the decree of God? Hazrat Umar radiyallahu ta'ala anhu replied that I am going from one divine decree to another. In other words, there are two types of divine decrees. One is specific and the other is of a general nature. But both decrees belong to God. Thus, Hazrat Umar stated that he was not running from the decree of God, rather he was going from one decree to another. It is mentioned in history that when Hazrat Umar learned of the outbreak of the plague, he gathered people in order to seek counsel from them and asked that the outbreak of the plague would often occur in Syria. Therefore, what did the people there do? They informed him that when the plague spreads, people disperse here and there, which subsequently weakens its impact. In other words, they would move to open areas instead of staying in the city. In relation to this suggestion, Hazrat Umar stated that God Almighty has established a general law, i.e. one who leaves an area where there is an outbreak of plague and travels to an open area is saved. And thus, since this was also in accordance with the divine law, therefore he was not violating any law of God, Rather, he was moving from one decree to another. That is, he was moving from a specific law to a general law of God Almighty. As Adumma stated that thus it cannot be said that he was running away from the divine decree. Rather, he was moving from one law of God to another. Although Hazrat Umar returned to Medina, however, he was extremely concerned as the plague was continuing to spread. One day, Hazrat Umar wrote a letter to Hazrat Abu Ubaidah stating that he required some important work from him. Therefore, upon receiving the letter, he should return to Medina immediately. Furthermore, he stated that if he received this letter at night, he should not wait for it to be morning, and if he received the letter in the morning, he should not wait for night to fall. When Hazrat Abu Ubaidah read the letter, he stated, I know the reason why the leader of the faithful needs me. May Allah bestow his mercy upon him, for he wishes to extend the life of that which is no longer going to remain. In other words, Hazrat Abu Ubaidah understood why Hazrat Umar was concerned and in reply to the letter, Hazrat Abu Ubaidah stated, O leader of the faithful, after reading the letter, I have understood what you desire. But please do not call me back and allow me to remain here. I am one of the soldiers from among the Muslim army. Whatever has been decreed will come to pass, but how can I leave them? When Hazrat Umar read the letter, he began to cry. At the time, Hazrat Umar was sitting amongst the Muhajireen and they asked, O leader of the faithful, has Abu Ubaidah passed away? Hazrat Umar replied, No, but there is a chance he may. Hazrat Umar wrote another letter to Hazrat Abu Ubaidah and instructed him to take the Muslims out of that area to a more pleasant atmosphere. Whenever any Muslim soldier would pass away and attain the status of martyrdom as a result of dying from the plague, Hazrat Abu Ubaidah would begin to cry and pray to be granted martyrdom. According to one narration, it states that at the time he would pray as follows, O oh Allah, is there no share in this for Abu Ubaidah to partake, i.e. to attain martyrdom? One day a small postule developed on Hazrat Abu Ubaidah's finger, and he prayed, I hope that Allah shall bestow his blessings through this small affliction. When something is filled with blessings, even if it is small, it becomes immense. 
Arbaz bin Sariya relates that when Hazrat Abu Ubaidah fell ill as a result of the plague, I went to Hazrat Abu Ubaidah and he stated to me that I've heard the Messenger of Allah say that one who dies as a result of the plague is a martyr, one who dies from illness of the stomach is a martyr, one who dies as a result of drowning is a martyr, and one who dies as a result of being crushed under a roof that falls through is also a martyr. In the final moments of his life, Hazrat Abu Ubaidah said to the people, I impart upon you one piece of advice, and if you adhere to it, you will greatly benefit from it. That is, observe the Salat, pay the Zakat, keep the fast of Ramadan, continue to give Sadqa, perform the Hajj and Umrah, urge one another to do good, treat your leaders well, and do not seek to deceive them, and do not allow the desire of women to become a reason for you to neglect your obligations. He stated that if a person remains alive for a thousand years, even then he will one day have to depart from this world, just as I am departing from this world. Death has been decreed for every single person by Allah. Everyone shall one day die. However, wise is he who is ever ready for death and continues to make provisions for that day. Convey my salam to the leader of the faithful, Ayy Hazrat Umar anhu, and let him know that I have fulfilled all my trusts. Hazrat Abu Ubaidah then stated that in accordance with my decision, bury me here. Thus, the grave of Hazrat Abu Ubaidah is situated in the valley of Besan in Jordan. And according to other narrations, Hazrat Abu Ubaidah bin Jarrah was travelling from Jabiyah towards Baitul Maqdas to offer his prayer when he passed away. And according to another narration, he passed away in Fahl, which is in Syria, and his grave is in an area near Bisan. During his final days, Hazrat Abu Ubaidah appointed Hazrat Muaz bin Jabal as his representative. When Hazrat Abu Ubaidah passed away, Hazrat Muaz bin Jabal states, O people, I have never seen anyone more pure-hearted, free from malice, loving and compassionate individual than the one who has passed away from among us today. Pray that may Allah bestow his mercy upon him. Hazrat Abu Ubaidah bin al-Jarrah passed away in 18 Hijri and he was 58 years of age at the time. Once, Hazrat Umar radiallahu ta'ala anhu sent Hazrat Abu Ubaidah 400 dirhams and 400 dinar and told his emissary to take note of what Hazrat Abu Ubaidah did with that wealth. And so when this emissary took the wealth and gave it to Hazrat Abu Ubaidah, he distributed it all amongst the people. The emissary narrated the entire event to Hazrat Umar and he stated, We are thankful to Allah for he raised people like Abu Ubaidah in Islam. On one occasion, Hazrat Umar asked his companions to express their desire for something. One of them replied, I wish this house be filled with gold so I could spend it in the way of Allah as sadqa. Another one stated, I wish this house be filled with pearls and rubies so I could spend it in the way of Allah as sadqa. Hazrat Umar then asked them to further express what they desired. They submitted, O leader of the faithful, we do not understand as to what it is that we should desire. Hazrat Umar stated, I wish that this house be filled with people like Hazrat Abu Ubaidah bin Jarrah, Hazrat Muaz bin Jabal, Salim Mola Abu Huzaifa, and Hazrat Huzaifa bin Yaman. In other words, people like them. Thus, how fortunate were these people who attained the pleasure of Allah the Almighty in this world and in the hereafter. Hazrat Abu Ubaidah anhu's accounts come to an end here. I will now lead some funeral prayers in absentia. The first is of a shaheed who was martyred only a few days ago, Professor Dr. Naimuddin Katak Sahib, son of Fazaldin Katak Sahib of the Peshawar district. On 5th October at half past one in the afternoon, 
Opponents of the community fired at him and he was martyred, Inna lillahi wa inna ilayhi rajiun. Surely to Allah we belong and to him shall we return. At around half past one, after teaching his lesson at the Superior Science College where he taught, he left and was on his way home when two people riding a motorcycle drove by and shot him and he was martyred on the spot, Inna lillahi wa inna ilayhi rajiun. Surely to Allah we belong and to him shall we return. The deceased was 56 years of age. He was associated with the teaching profession for 25 years. He completed his master's in philosophy from the Qaeda Azam University, after which he travelled to China on a scholarship and obtained his PhD in microenvironmental biology. After this, he served in the Islamia College University. He also taught at Peshawar University and he was a member of the panel which interviewed those students who had applied for PhD. Also, various academic institutions across Pakistan would invite him to deliver lectures. He was mostly involved in academia. Ahmadiyyat was established in his family through his paternal grandfather, Ruknuddin Katak Sahib, who was from the Karak district, as well as his paternal grandmother, Bibi Noor Nama Sahiba, who also accepted Ahmadiyyat. Her father's name, i.e. his paternal grandmother's father's name was Sher Zaman, who was a companion of the Promised Messiah And he was given a kurta shirt as a gift by the Promised Messiah upon returning from Qadiyan. And this tabarruk remains in the family's possession to this day. Naimuddin Katak Sahib's father, Fazaldin Sahib, was a livestock veterinary doctor and retired as a deputy director and he was also a well-known poet. His mother, Mahbubatur Rahman Sahiba, was the Deputy Director of the Education Department, and she continued to serve at this post till her retirement. The family was made to endure opposition for many years. The Shaheed's father-in-law, Bashir Ahmed Advocate, who was the President of the Chini Paya Jamaat in Peshawar, was kidnapped in 2019, and his whereabouts remain unknown even to this day, as he was never located. The Shaheed possessed many great virtues, he would offer services to Jamaat, and though he was a well-learned person, he would always be available to perform security duty. He was particularly known for his hospitality. He was extremely compassionate. He helped the poor and had a very loving relationship with every member of his family. He was focused on education and would constantly advise Ahmadi children to obtain an education. He also ensured that his own children were also well-educated. The deceased's wife, Saadia Bushra Sahiba, says that one week before his martyrdom, the Shaheed went to Rabwa and when he visited Bahishti Makbara, he expressed his desire of being buried there. But with this, he also stated that perhaps he was not worthy of this desire to be fulfilled. However, Allah the Almighty fulfilled this desire of his in such a way that he was buried in Rabwa. Naimuddin Katak Sahib's brother-in-law, Dr. Munir Ahmed Khan, who currently serves at the Tahir Heart Institute in Rabwa, says that Naimuddin Sahib told him that there was a professor who was opposed to the Jamaat and he would show pictures of Naimuddin Sahib and his children to opponents of the Jamaat and would encourage these opponents to kill them. Also, banners inciting opposition were also put up outside his home. His brother-in-law says that when Naimuddin Sahib came to meet him a week before his martyrdom, 
he invited him to sit and eat with them. However, he said that he would eat from the langar, i.e. the kitchen of the promised Messiah for the delight and blessings in eating from the langar of the promised Messiah cannot be found anywhere else. And he said that he would eat with them another time. Naimuddin Katak Sahib is survived by his wife Sadia Naseem Sahiba, three daughters and two sons. One of his daughters is married, while the other two are still studying. And one of their sons is an engineer, and the other is currently studying in his first year. Their names are Kalimuddin Katak and Nuruddin Katak. Nuruddin Katak is studying in his first year, and Kalimuddin is an engineer. Another relative of his who is also serving the Jamaat is Naveed Ahmad Sahib, who is serving as the Amir Jamaat Peshawar and is his brother-in-law. May Allah the Almighty grant the deceased his forgiveness and mercy and grant his family the strength to remain patient. The second funeral is of Usama Sadiq, who was a student of Jami Ahmadiyya, Germany. He was the son of Muhammad Sadiq Sahib. And a few days ago, he drowned in the Rhine River in Germany and passed away. Inna lillahi wa inna ilayhi rajiun. Surely to Allah we belong and to him shall we return. He was 20 years of age at the time of his demise. His family was from Chak Sikandar, Gujarat, Pakistan. He was the youngest amongst his siblings and he is survived by five sisters and one brother along with his parents. From his paternal side, Ahmadiyyad was introduced in the family during the time of Hazrat Muslim Aud when his grandfather and his two brothers accepted Ahmadiyyad. Later, the two brothers left Ahmadiyyad. However, his grandfather remained steadfast in Ahmadiyyad. From the maternal side, Ahmadiyyad was introduced through his great-grandfather Hazrat Shah Muhammad Sahib and his father Hazrat Langar Muhammad Sahib who were companions of the Promised Messiah They pledged allegiance at the hands of the Promised Messiah in 1903 in Jalam. In 1989, conditions of the Jamaat in Chak Sikandar became very dire and there were many riots against Ahmadis. The deceased parents were also made to face a great deal of opposition. The deceased's mother was also attacked and his father was tried with a false lawsuit which continued for seven years. They then moved to Germany and Osama Sadiq had obtained his primary education in Pakistan and then after coming to Germany he entered Jamia Ahmadiyya and he had just completed his third year. However, it was ordained by the decree of Allah the Almighty that he be called back to him. The deceased father says that no matter how much he compliments him it will not be enough for he achieved a great deal in the span of a short life. Along with being a student, he was a model child. Much of his time was devoted to his studies. Due to the coronavirus, he spent the last six months at home. Along with offering Salat in congregation, he also kept all the fasts in Ramadan and would lead the congregational Taravi prayers as well. And after the holidays, he was preparing to return to Jamia. However, he passed away. His mother says that he possessed innumerable virtues. He was extremely responsible in his work and aimed to finish it quickly. He was of simple nature. He was quiet and spoke only when necessary. 
He was extremely obedient to his parents and was resolute in whatever he intended to do. He was very disciplined and far-sighted. He tried to become proficient in various languages and was thus particularly focusing on Arabic, Persian, English and German. The National Secretary for Tablik in Germany, Farid Sahib, writes that Osama possessed many virtues, one of which was his passion for participating in Tablik activities, i.e. propagating the message of Islam. And two days prior to his demise, he had finished travelling to East Germany for three consecutive days for flyer distribution. Whenever he was asked to distribute flyers, he never refused and would participate enthusiastically. Suheb Nasir Sahib, a missionary who graduated from Jamia, Germany, says that though Usama Sadiq was four years junior to him, he was an example for him in worship. Usama Sadiq would often sit in the first row of the mosque and would often arrive in the mosque before the start of prayer and offer nawafil, i.e. voluntary prayers. Then, even after the prayer, he would occupy himself in the remembrance of Allah. He was one of those students who would be the first to enter the mosque and the last to leave. Similarly, he would sit in the front row for Friday prayers as well. He was very serious about his studies in Jamia. May Allah the Almighty grant the deceased his forgiveness and mercy and elevate his station. May he grant his parents and siblings the strength to remain patient. The next funeral is that of Salim Ahmed Malik Sahib. He was previously part of the Department for Education of the government or perhaps in educational institutions. And after his retirement, he served as a teacher in Jamia Ahmadiyya, UK. He passed away at the age of 87 on the 24th of September. Inna lillahi wa inna ilayhi rajiun. To Allah we belong and to him shall we return. His grandfather, Hazrat Malik Nuruddin Sahib, and his father, Hazrat Malik Aziz Ahmed Sahib, were both companions of the Promised Messiah, alayhi salam. His mother narrated an incident of his father. At once, many family members on the paternal side of Malik Sahib had passed away due to a certain illness. And so his mother, i.e. the grandmother of Salim Malik Sahib, informed Hazrat Mulvi Hakim Nuruddin Sahib about the state of her child. Hazrat Mulvi Hakim Nuruddin Sahib anhu immediately went to their home to see him and said that the likelihood of the child's survival is very low and only prayers can now save him. Thereafter, Hazrat Khalifatul Masih I went to the Promised Messiah and made a request for prayers. It was at the stairs of Masjid Aqsa that he met the Promised Messiah and made the request. Thereupon, the Promised Messiah said, Let us go now and see the child. Hence, the Promised Messiah went to his house and after entering, he placed his hand on the child's forehead and stated, God willing, this child will be fine. Thus, it was the miracle of the prayers of the Promised Messiah that the child recovered and he, i.e. the father of the deceased, lived to the age of 70. Salim Malik Sahib gained his primary education in Qadiyan and after the partition he moved to Sialkot where he studied in college. Thereafter he moved to Karachi where he pursued his studies in the field of science. He then moved to the UK in 1960 and was teaching as a professor of geological chemistry for many years at Reading University. He had the honour of serving in various departments from the very early days of the Jamaat in the UK. He was appointed as the National Talim or Tarbiyat Secretary. He also served many years as the Amuri Kharja Secretary and also rendered great services in the Department of the Jamaat for International Relations. He twice had the opportunity of going to Pakistan and preparing the report along with Human Rights Committee that investigated the state of affairs of the Ahmadis. And every year, large-scale expo is organized in different countries. 
and Salim Saheb had the opportunity to set up and organize the stall in this expo about the Jamaat in the UK and Spain in 1992. When Hazrat Khalifa al-Masih IV rahimahullah, formed a committee in 1997 with regards to establishing Jamia Ahmadiyya in UK, he also included Salim Malik Saheb. Similarly, he was also part of the committees prior to the commencement of Jamia Ahmadiyya UK and when Jamia Ahmadiyya UK was established, he was appointed as the Chief Administrator and he served in this capacity until 13th November 2005. He also had the opportunity to teach English and history to the Jamia Ahmadiyya students, which he continued to do up until his demise. When Islamabad was purchased, upon the instructions of Hazrat Khalifa al-Masih IV, Salim Malik Saib had the opportunity of setting up a library there. The disease was a very religious, regular in offering prayers and in fasting, extremely loving to others, eloquent in speech, a caller unto God, hospitable and a pious man who was an ardent lover of Khilafat with a real bond of loyalty and sincerity. He is survived by his wife, three daughters and many grandchildren. His nephew, Mia Abdul Wahab Sahib, says that Salim Sahib told him that when he moved to London in 1960, his father, Malik Aziz Ahmed Sahib, who was unwell at the time, gave some advice to his son. Firstly, to never to lose his connection with the Jamaat. He said that just because he was going to the UK, it did not mean that he should immerse himself in all its attractions. Secondly, to always pay chanda, a monetary contribution on time and at the full rate, for this is also necessary in purifying the soul. And thirdly, if anyone asks him for help, he should never refuse, no matter how much difficulty it left him in. Salim Saib said that he always acted upon this advice of his parents. His nephew further writes that although the deceased did not mention this to him himself, but he later found out that once one of his friends was in need of a large sum of money, so Salim Saib sold his house to fulfill the person's needs. However, later God Almighty then blessed him with an even bigger house. Academically, he was a very knowledgeable person. When I met him at the beginning, when I was not yet acquainted with him, I thought he was perhaps an ordinary Ahmadi who taught English as his English language was good. But later, I realized that he greatly excelled in his sincerity and devotion and that he was prepared to serve the Jamaat at all times and that he had an extraordinary bond of love with Khilafat. In terms of his knowledge, he was a walking encyclopedia he had a grasp on every subject, history in particular. Similarly, he had keen interest in both English and Urdu literature, but he would never boast about his knowledge. He would always encourage others to increase their religious, worldly, political and secular knowledge. He also had many connections within the Pakistani community, which he always put to use for the benefit of the Jamaat. When Salim Malik Sahib was serving as the External Affairs Secretary of the Jamaat, he maintained a strong relationship with Lord Avebury and it was through him that the rapport with the Jamaat was established. Furthermore, Salim Malik Sahib played a key role in my first visit to the Houses of Parliament. Marwan Sarvalgil, the missionary in Argentina, says that Salim Sahib was well respected among all Jamia students, including myself owing to his academic character. But it was only after graduating that a personal relationship was established. And when I was appointed in Argentina, he was extremely pleased and would tell me that you are a pioneer missionary, therefore you have a lot of work to do. 
and you have to illuminate the Jamaat's name, preach in an excellent manner, but most importantly, to learn the local language. You should learn it to the level where your articles are published in newspapers. He had a very keen interest in this on an academic level. Similarly, Jamia students and missionaries, including Marwan Sahib, have written that he would often invite his students to his home and then take them to his personal library. He would then say that as a gift for coming to my house, you can take any book you please from this library. This is my gift to you. Salim Sahib would always say that Jamia Ahmadiyya is no ordinary institution and the Khalifatul Masih has many expectations from it. Therefore, the Waqfine Zindgi, i.e. life devotees who have an association with this institution, ought to attain an extraordinary level of knowledge. Mirwan Sahib further writes that before I left for Argentina, Salim Sahib gave me advice that I should master the language to the extent that my articles in Spanish are published in newspapers. And he also told me to continue writing to letters to him. And if I ever became lazy in doing so, he would contact me himself. May Allah grant the deceased forgiveness and mercy and enable those he leaves behind, his children and his progeny, to maintain the same bond of dedication and sincerity with Khilafat and the Jamaat. After the prayer, I shall lead the funeral prayers in absentia. Alhamdulillah, Alhamdulillah,